Good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church Virtual Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. And as you're turning there, I want to give a couple of, of updates. So now, uh, it's been two weeks now, so today is our third week that we are doing an outdoor service. Um, I thought I would give the online people just a little bit of a heads up or awareness of, of what we've been doing here at Grace Point Church. And so with the new guidelines from the state of California, we're able to gather outside. There's not an, a, a restriction on numbers. We have a sound system set up and we have shade set up. We meet from about eight, you know, eight o'clock to 9 a.m. It's the same exact sermon that we're doing here. I'm now all set up uh, to, to basically go between the video service and um, the outdoor service. I really view it as that we have two services happening right now. And so right now we have chairs set up outside. Uh, I'm pretty much set up in the, the corner, so I look towards the building and I can see towards the playground and I can see sort of towards the, the sanctuary where the door um, opens up out to the patio. And so basically people are in both those areas very well spread out and so... We do have chairs. We have the picnic tables. A lot of people bring their own, um, like their their lawn chairs and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, if you ever want to pop in, you can do that. And uh, but if not, we continue to to pre-record uh, the service. Uh, live streaming is tricky just because it's a whole nother sound system, and and so it's it's. Uh, it's it wouldn't be as workable. So I'm I'm perfectly fine and happy to uh, to preach a sermon here um, for the online crowd for those that that can't uh, make it in or or un, unable or un, just just if you have underlying health issues and your uncertainty. We certainly live in times when it's difficult, and so I'm I am happy uh, to do this and to serve you all uh, during this time. Another announcement. I'm not sure if you all or who gets the e-newsletter, but if you do not get the e-newsletter, uh, you won't have seen this. Uh, but those that do, we received some some hard news this week, and I would like uh, to share here what, what Jeremiah Rouse shared with all of us uh, so that you can be praying. And so what I received from him is this. What we are willing to share with everyone is that Hannah has a very treatable form of leukemia, she is going to be going through treatment that is going to make her immune system very weak for the next six to eight months. Because of this, we will have to be very careful about illness and the possibility of infections. We thank you for your prayers and welcome letters and notes of encouragement, especially for Hannah and Rebecca. Hannah is still in the hospital and will remain there for at least the next week. And so if you would like to uh, send notes of encouragement, if you don't have their address, you can reach out to the church and and Melanie will be happy to get you the information. Or you can simply uh, mail a letter or anything to the church. Uh, Don't use our physical address, use the P.O. box and we will make sure that it gets to them. And so we want to be praying for them. It's an exceptionally difficult time. And so we do thank you uh, for your prayers uh, for the family during this time. All right, with that, let's pray. And we'll look at our passage for today. 
Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have uh, to, to gather together um, online here uh, through this premiered service. We ask that you would uh, use the time that we are here uh, to worship you, uh, to study your word. Lord, help us to grow closer to you uh, through this time. I, I very much am enjoying and being encouraged through this letter of the Thessalonians. And so, Lord, we ask that you would uh, just lead us, Lord, guide us, bless us right now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Again, I'm reading out of the NIV. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with all the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do thank you for this time. We ask that you would lead us and guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So as I've been... Um, Getting to know Thessalonians. This is a new book. I've been super encouraged by it, and just I've really enjoyed it. It's not a, it's not a, a book of the Bible that, quite frankly, that I've been really familiar with. So it's uh, it's forcing me into the text. It's forcing me to really soak it in. Uh, I initially, when I sort of outlined it, I thought I'd be covering much larger segments, and and. I, I realized that being outside and being in the heat and just the environment that I've had to reduce uh, the amount of verses that we cover each week. But at the same time, I'm realizing that as I focus in on the text, there's really a lot here to unpack. And so hopefully I can keep it shorter for the heat. It's been, we've just been in this heat wave. Uh, Sunday looks like it's going to be a little bit cooler. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But today, the next two weeks, we're uh, today we're looking at verses 4 through 6. Next week we're going to look at 7 through 10. Often these, all these verses are kind of grouped together. And if we were to group the, this whole sort of paragraph together, uh, we could identify this paragraph with two words, chosen and changed. And so sort of the first part dealing with the, the believer being chosen by God. And then as a result of that choosing, as we become Christians, then we see the change that manifests in, in our lives. And in the case of the Thessalonians, we see that Paul focuses on the evidence or the fruit that he saw in their life as they accepted Christ and began to walk with him. And so today we're going to look at a very heavy topic. I'm gonna, it's really been gr- grappling with it this week. Uh, it's one of these that uh, people argue about and debate about, and it's very easy to sort of get into two separate teams. And, and I don't think that's the point of, of why uh, the, the terms that we're going to look at, this whole idea of chosen or election or predestination, uh, <clears throat> I think in context, we'll, hopefully we'll be encouraged uh, through this. And so with that, let's Look at the very first part of of the sentence in verse 4. And Paul writes, for we know. And I have to stop right right here. So 
In the, in the NIV, verse 4 begins a new sentence. If you had the, the New American Standard, which I normally preach out of, uh, it sort of, the New American Standard conveys the, uh, the literal sort of grammatical usage in, in the Greek, namely that verses 2 through 5 are one really long sentence, and there's a lot there. Paul does this. He, he begins to write out a thought, and he just packs it and, and with these theological terms and concepts and things that he's expressing, and it's easy to lose the, the, the flow of thought of what's happening. And so the NIV, which tends to be more of a, a paraphrased translation, sort of breaks up that grammar to, to make it more usable. Uh, every translation of the Bible that we have and use, or, or any language, anytime you're translating from one language to the other, it's, it really is a, an art of, of conveying uh, sort of this balance between conveying the words that are said and, and the thoughts that are implied between the words. And so the point, when we come to this, uh, for we know, uh, in the Greek, this is a, a participle, and it's connected to a verb um, back in verse 2. And what it's connected to is that thought, we always thank God. And so everything that we look at today is sort of under this umbrella of uh, that we always thank God for all of you. And, and so f- from that, we thank God for all of you. There's a number of things that have sort of been uh, hung on that idea or that verb of giving thanks. Uh, I do think that this is a great reminder, again, for us to live lives of gratitude. If there's nothing else that in the New Testament that I see beyond uh, Christ coming and living and dying for us so that we could have eternal life. The the first uh, mark of the Christian life is that of gratitude. And so I think it's a a good reminder for us to develop this life that's just sort of marked out by gratefulness. And so last week we looked um, at three things that Paul gave thanks to uh, concerning their life, namely their, their work that was produced by faith, their labor that was um, prompted by love, and their endurance that was inspired by hope. And so now uh, a fourth thing that he's adding on to this is he says, we, we know. So we give thanks to God for we know something. And so first, right again, the, the we here, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these three individuals who were there first with Paul, or two individuals that were there with Paul as he shared the gospel for the first time uh, to the Thessalonians and where the church was born. And Timothy, after Paul had gotten kicked out of town, he goes back, he gets news, he comes back to Paul, he shares about what's been going on. And so Paul is just rejoicing uh, in these things that he knows. He knows about their, their faith, their hope, their love, the things that they have been doing. And now there's something else that he knows that, uh, that, that is really connected in the next two verses. There's two more things that he knows that uh, causes him uh, to, just to have gratitude. And so the first phrase we come upon is, he says, brothers and sisters loved by God. For we know brothers and sisters loved by God. And he refers to them 
Uh, the word literally is brethren, but it's their brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that he uses this phrase 15 times in 1 Thessalonians. I think it's another seven times in 2 Thessalonians. So it, this is a word that Paul uses a lot, but he uses it the most in this letter to the Thessalonians. That, that this, this identity that Paul is not up on a pedestal looking down on them as, a, as an apostle. Paul is their brother in Christ. Think, and it's just a mind-boggling thing to consider that this man who was of the highest and credentialed pedigree of the Jews who hated the Gentiles is now reaching the Gentiles for Christ and he's, he's identifying with them as their, their brother in Christ who is, who is loved by God. He reminds them of this very simple truth. They are connected, united together in Christ, and that they each are loved by God. This is a, a, just a powerful thought that we often just take for granted or we don't really think upon or meditate upon, but it's a simple truth that we all need, namely that God loves you. God loves you. God loves me. And this love for us has compelled God to do a number of things on our behalf. Uh, when I read this phrase, love by God, which is the only place that Paul uses this, this the way he links it together in the Greek, it's the only place that he uses this, this phrase, love by God. Um, it's something really deep. And it reminds me of that song that sometimes we sing in church, a good, good father. Just this, this reminder of, of the closeness of God, that he knows you, he created you, he loves you, he sees his image in your life. He wants good for you. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And from this, we see the phrase that he has chosen you. Now, this word chosen, it's a difficult doctrine. It's the, the word chosen in some translations that you have, it could be election. Uh, but he, this idea that... Uh, you know, we always thank God for all of you, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so right there, uh, there's this idea of God's election, this, God's, this idea of God's uh, choosing these individuals out apart from others. Um, it's a difficult doctrine to grapple with. It's one that uh, so often is brought up in the context of of wanting to get, you know, I don't know if wanting to get Christians to argue, but within Christian circles, it's very easy uh, to, to lose sight of the big picture and to focus on sort of a, a disagreement's not even a word that I would use, but, but as we grapple with the, the tension relating to salvation between God's part and man's responsibility in this whole process of salvation, it it can be mind-boggling. And the argument sort of goes like this. Um, so on, on one hand, the Bible makes it absolutely clear um, that, that God is there, God is sovereign, God is the initiator, God has sovereign choice and election of his people. Like I, there's, there's no denying that. Um, and so then the tension with that thought is 
if this is true, and, and the Bible says it's true, so I, like, I hold to this, um, if it's all God's doing, then our minds can wander down this, this dangerous and frustrating road of fatalism or predetermination, meaning that none of this life matters, none of what we do matters, we're just sort of robots. Why do we share Christ? Why do we do these things if everything's been predetermined and there's no really like point in all of this? Um, like it's just frustrating. And, and it doesn't seem fair. Like what about those that weren't chosen? Then, so, that, so that's, on, that's on one side of the coin. And as I say that, I acknowledge, I believe, like the Bible makes it clear, today's passage. We, we, we read it right here. Um, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. There's, there's, there's no question in my mind that the Bible speaks of election and, and God's choosing of his children. But then on the other side of the coin, the Bible also makes it clear that salvation is presented to all humans, to all people of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Like it's all through the scriptures. And I think it's in Second Peter 2, 1 that we, we read about um, those whom Jesus died for that they continue to introduce uh, difficult heresies and then they go to their destruction. And these are those individuals who are clearly not believers that Jesus has died for. And, and, and so this is the tension, God's election, like on the other side of the coin, uh, God and the Bible makes it absolutely clear that a choice needs to be made, that each individual has to make a choice as they're presented with the gospel. And nobody is saved that hasn't responded to this gift that has been presented to them. And so we have these these. These two issues, God's sovereignty in his electing of his saints to man's responsibility on the other side, these, there's tension here. There's a, there's a mystery here that our minds can't, can't boggle. And so on one side, you have the Calvinist who clings to one side. And on the other side, you have the Arminian who clings to the other side. And they seem to be at war with each other. And namely because their, their, their minds are committed to picking a side. They, they can't sort of hold these two truths that seem to be at, at tension with each other together. And this is often why I refer to myself as a theological mutt. Like, I, I appreciate both sides. Uh, there was an illustration by this guy named, well, it's hard to say his name, Cooper, I think is how you would say his name. He was a professor at uh, a, a Calvin Seminary. And so I read about an illustration that he gave concerning God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I thought it was quite good. And this is what he shared. He said, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I only cling to one, if I only cling if I cling only to one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the, of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teach, teachings regarding whosoever will come to me, urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming 
contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. I love that, by the puny human mind. Amen. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity, I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, one piece of rope. I thought that was really good. Now, let's go back and look at the big picture of all of this. We have to look at the context, context, context. As I consider Thessalonians, we go back to verse 2. The big umbrella, this falls under Paul, Silas, and Timothy giving thanks to God for all of these believers in Thessalonica. In verse 4, we read, For we know brothers loved by God, that these are individuals who are loved by God. There's no longer a Jewish thing or a Gentile thing. There's no longer male, female. It's they are brothers and sisters united in Christ. Now, skipping ahead down to verse 6, which we will get to, we see that in spite of severe suffering in the NIV or in much tribulation in the New American Standard. And so as he's thanking God for them, as he's considering this fruit in their life, as he recognizes them as beloved children of God, chosen by God in the midst of this great suffering, great tribulation, great persecution. And so in the midst of this trial that they're going through, there's great peace in the midst of God's sovereignty, um, knowing that he has chosen his children uh, as they endure persecutions, these trials, these tribulations, God is greater than your problems. God is greater than my problems. God is greater than the coronavirus. God is greater than the American elections that are ramping up. God is greater than our politicians. God is greater than our doctors and scientists who are trying to figure this all out. And so it's super easy to allow our minds to run wild with fear and worry and concern about the future. They were going through all of these trials and tribulations and abuses for for what they believed and what Paul had done. Paul literally is kicked out of Thessalonica or Thessalonica. And yet what he does is he points them to the truths that he knows that God loves them, that God is in control, he's chosen them. In the midst of their trials, they can, be, they can find peace, knowing that God has a plan in all of it. For many years, I struggled. As I uh, struggled in the, the coming to Christ, struggled in the uh, finding my identity as a Christian, uh, struggling with terms of, of my, my childhood. You know, I'm pretty open with my childhood and the things that I went through, but I, I grew up in a, in a pretty severely abusive home. And, you know, the last time I saw my biological mom is when I, she's passed away now, but when I had to testify against her in court at 11 years old. And so kind of figuring out if God is good, then, then what about this abusive childhood that I went through? Like how, like how do I make sense of it all? 
And so for me, understanding the whole like concept of predestination and chosen and, and sort of living this life among sinful men and the freedom that, men, that God has given men within his sovereignty and how does it all play together, um, I finally came to peace when I stumbled across Acts chapter 17, verses um, 26 through 27. In the story of Acts, Paul moves from Thessalonica. He makes his way all the way to Athens, and there he is with these these great minds, these philosophers. And so there he sits on Mars Hill and he begins to share with them about the God of the Bible. And he sort of looks at their culture. He, he sees the, uh, the one stone that's to the unknown God. And he said, I want to tell you about this unknown God. And in the midst of, of, of his speech or his sermon to these individuals, we read this in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 27. Paul says to them, speaking of God, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So we see this uh, this this predetermined plan of God that all came about from Adam and Eve, that every single individual that was born, you might have been a surprise or an accident to your parents, but you were not, and I was not a surprise to God, that before the foundations of the world, he knew who each of us were going to be. And he had a plan for each of us, and he uh, allowed you to be born at the particular date that you were born in. You're going to die at a particular date that God knows beforehand. You live in certain area on the human earth. You have, in your life, you have certain abilities to be limited within that area or to, to be able to, to, to explore. Literally, before I came here, I saw, uh, you know, an online live video from the guys that were living in space. And it was really cool because one of those guys, Chris Cassidy, was, was a guy that I knew from the SEAL teams. And to see this guy like up in space, like God hasn't like given me in this, the boundaries of their lands. Like some of us are, God gives us the ability to go to space. I know some people who never have been in an airplane or never left their, the town that they grew up in for whatever reason. Some of us travel around the world. Um, but we're told so that this so that is very important that, that the limitations that God has placed in each of our lives in the time and location that you have born and lived and the circumstances that you've gone through both good and bad have a purpose so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him now in the NIV uh, we, we see reach out for him and find him. In, in the New American Standard, it uses this word grope, which I really like. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of a blind person using their hands to see. I'm trying to find a sneeze right now. Uh, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The, the point of all of this, and in this discussion of your freedom of, of choice and and what you want to do with the knowledge that you have about God and God's working behind the scenes on your, your election of what you're going to do. Uh, this, 
in the midst of this, what Acts chapter 17 seems to say, it's like I have that idea, I, the Olympic, the Winter Olympics. I don't even, like a shuffleboard where the guys kind of, you know, they, there's a big brick of something and then they're out there with their brooms and they're kind of like, I don't know if it's salt or whatever, but they're trying to either speed it up or slow it down. It's, and they're trying to direct the movement of, of that thing to, to get to a certain spot. I, I've never really played it. So, um, but it's the idea that God has placed you in this time and location, all the circumstances of your life, both good and bad, so that you would be poised to be in the sweetest spot to find God, to reach out to him. He wants you to find you. The last thing here, he's not far from any one of us. Some of us, it's been said, I think, that the, the longest distance for God is 18 inches from your heart to your mind. To be able to come to terms with the claims of the Bible and the history and all the evidence, and then for you to finally surrender to God and say, yes, I believe. God has poised everything in your life, whether you, for all of us, believers and unbelievers, so that you would be in the absolute sweet spot in your life that you would reach out and find God. He's right there. He wants you to come to faith in Christ because he loves you. Verse 5, we read, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, and so we come right away in the fifth verse of Thessalonians to this term gospel, euangelion. It's a, it's a key word in the New Testament. It means good news. It's something that, it's a word that we hear a lot, but we may or may not actually understand what the gospel is. And so I want to take this time to clearly, my prayer, to clearly explain the gospel to you. And the gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses, we read this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. There's that word, I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel. There's the word again. You are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So there's a word believed, and Paul's making sure that the things that they're believing in, the things that they're trusting in for their eternal life are clear to them. And what he goes on to say, for what I received and what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is clear. This is the gospel that Jesus went to the cross, prophesied in scripture that he would go to the cross, that the wrath of God would be placed on him for the sins of the world, for everyone's sins, and that he ultimately would be killed on the cross, that he would be taken down, he'd be buried, and on the third day he would rise again. All of this was prophesied. We just went through Mark. And then on the third day he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And then the big question is, is like, well, that's the gospel. That's knowing the facts. But just knowing the facts, that doesn't save you. That, uh, it doesn't make it effective. And so the question that, that, just, that I didn't understand for so many years, I was like, in, I, was, 
I wasn't really raised in the church, but I went to Catholic church and I was there like a lot of Sundays I was there, but I never understood the gospel. I just didn't. It wasn't presented in a way that was clear to me. And so if the gospel is that Jesus died for you on the cross, how does, it, how does that transaction actually re- result in a, in a change in your life, a life that is transformed? Now in Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 11 through 13, Paul expands upon this to the Ephesian believers. And normally I just share one verse in here, but I want to expand because we also deal with the issue of the tension that I talked about of chosen. Man's responsibility on one side, God's sovereignty and election. We see it both in this passage. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him... Jesus, we were also chosen, there's that word, election, having been predestined, another troubling word, that there was boundaries placed on your life. The word is literally like horizon, that there are certain boundaries placed upon you within your life according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel. Here's the gospel again, that Jesus died, that Jesus was executed on the cross according to scriptures for your sins, that he was buried on the third day he rose again. So at some point in your life, and you, it may have been a long time ago or it might have been just 30 seconds ago when I explained the gospel to you in this video. At some point, you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, if you write in your Bible, circle, highlight that word believed. Believing is the action which makes the gospel effective in an individual's life. At that moment of belief, when you place your trust in Christ and his work on the cross, at that moment that you believed, you're moved from death into life. You're moved from the body of Adam into the body of Christ. He goes on to say, you are marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we're told at that moment of belief, immediately you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a a down payment that at the moment you die, you go be with the Lord. And, And this Holy Spirit is given to us. He is there to convict us of our sin, to guide us, to lead us, to give us peace. It's God's person resident in our bodies now. It's beautiful. And, and Paul says here in verse 5, as soon as I find it, there it is, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. He says not just with words, But words are absolutely required. God uses words, speech of the gospel. God has communicated to us through the scriptures, which are words. But he says, but with power, that's dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. So this is like explosive power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. 
Paul is saying there was something far greater than just our words going on that when we shared the gospel with you. I think of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 that we read there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Keyword, believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Something happens in the preaching of God's word. Something happens as we communicate the gospel to others. I can't tell you how many times an individual has come up to me and saying, man, God used you. Like, I'm so thankful for you and your words and what you've said. And I know who I am and I know it's not my words. There are times when I preach and there's just like uh, a lack of confidence and, and even maybe doubt in my mind, but I preach and the words go out And I know that it's not me, but somehow, like through God's power, this great mystery that God uses, you know, a broken man, you know, it's Alistair Begg that says the best of men are men at best. But somehow through men and through your witnessing to others, somehow in that moment, it's not just the words. But the Spirit of God links to those words and to the individual that hears them. And, and there it's like a knife through butter. Like if you've ever heard the voice of God where there's that deep uh, conviction within you and trembling and fear and just being overwhelmed that God is speaking, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And clearly this is what happened as Paul went into Thessalonica and the word of God went out. It wasn't Paul's speech. It wasn't his cleverness. When people are touched by the gospel through my preaching, I know it's not me. It's the spirit of God. If you are moved by what you hear, it's not my speech. It's not that Gunnar some great speaker. It's that the spirit of God is moving through his word touching your innermost being and convicting you of your sin and your need for him. This is, this is powerful. This is mighty. And for those of us who are being saved, we understand the power of God. For the world, it seems like foolishness. Then he goes on to say, you know how we lived among you for your sake. So it's not just about the words. So it's like, you know, we hear it all the time, though. Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. I, I just don't buy that. I know I said that before I was a Christian, and it was just, I didn't want to hear it. Of course, there are bad apples. In every profession, there are bad apples, and there are people who don't actually believe. But then there's a difference between the person who believes in Christ as a, is legitimately a Christian. They're not, their lives are not perfect. That they have a standard. We want to attain this perfection, but we don't have it. That's not hypocrisy. We're sinners saved by grace. It's, our, our whole lives should be marked by humility. But in that humility, we don't run wild in, in, in lawlessness. We want to honor God, and through his spirit, our lives are changed. Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, he says to Timothy, be diligent in these matters. 
Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How you live your life matters, especially for the pastor, for the Christian who you're out sharing about Christ. Your life better align with what you say. Like it's just a reality. You're, I should have written it down. It's like you're, you're, uh, your words talk and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, I think is how the saying goes. And, and so your life is a testimony to the words that you say. And so Paul says, you know how we lived among you. We lived, he's going to unpack this about how he lived his life. Paul knows that as he lives his life, others are looking to him. For me as a pastor, I like I pray, Lord, help me to honor you with my life. Help me to honor you with my thoughts. Help me to honor you with my words. I don't want to be a stumbling block to the gospel. I deeply believe in the church. I deeply believe in our gathering and our living lives together that as you live your life with Christ, then you have a responsibility to share your life with others who are a little bit uh, behind you in the road so that you can be an example, that you can help them navigate life. You should have those that have been walking with Christ a lot longer than you so that you can go to them and ask for help. This happens in community. This is why gathering is so important. We were not created to live in isolation. We need one another to live our lives. 13 years ago, this is why Anna and I, we moved to Valley Center, not just to plant a church or to restart a church. We came here to plant our lives. And so I love this connectedness within this story between Paul and the Thessalonians. He goes on to say in verse 6 that you became imitators of us in the Lord. So Paul lived his life in a way that as he taught them the doctrine and the things that he was explaining to them about the gospel, they got it in their mind, but they also saw an example in him, and then they were able to imitate it. The question is, is who are you imitating? You will imitate those around you. There's no question. So often, American Christianity, for for the last however many years, I think that we're going through a refining process. I do think one of the blessings of the pandemic is the church in America is going to go through a refining. There's going to be a winnowing. There's going to be a a challenge for are you standing with Christ or are you not? And so there's going to be this process of, of people and their worldview and what they really believe and how far will they stand. Like All of these things are going to be challenged who you hang out with, who you allow to, to put input into your mind, what you watch on the TV, and what worldview you're placing into you. All of this matters. There's the old saying, I think it's an old Spanish saying, or maybe it was Anna's grandpa saying, or somebody. who I, All I know is I know I got this saying through Anna. And the saying is, show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. The point is, is that you are influenced by something or someone, and what the Bible tells us to do is to be influenced by God and godly examples. That requires us to have deep, meaningful relationships with others. 
Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. So we need to guard our minds. We need to put the word of God into our minds. We need the spirit of God to lead us, to guide us, to to convict us of our sin and our old thinking. The way I think today is not how I thought 25 years ago before before I encountered Christ. I got myself involved in church. I got myself into the consumption of the word of God. I began to see how my brothers and sisters navigated uh, pitfalls that I was struggling with. And God transformed me. And my life began to change, which is, which is where we go next week. We'll see the change that happened in these very young believers' lives. He goes on to say the very last thing, verse 6, you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message, that's the gospel, in the midst of what? Severe suffering. So in the midst of severe suffering from their afflictions, from their anguish, the persecution, the things that they were going through, in spite of all of that stuff, they received the gospel with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. These believers didn't receive a prosperity gospel. They didn't receive a a false gospel that said, if you come to Christ and you give your life to him by faith, all your problems are going to go away. Everything's going to be fixed for you. That's not what they heard. They heard about Jesus who died for them on the cross. He died for you as well. That the wrath of God was placed upon him for their sins that he was buried and that he rose on the third day. And if they believed, if they trusted in this message, they would receive eternal life, that the Spirit of God would come within them and give them supernatural joy and peace that would allow them to get through the storms of life. Their hope wasn't found in this life. This life will fail you, but God never will. And so we, as we continue, as we get into this, I've been so blessed by Thessalonians so far. The two words that sort of are the key words through this book are afflictions and advent. And so today we see these two words that in the midst of their afflictions, they heard the gospel clearly that Jesus died for them. They look forward to his return And they have hope, and regardless of what happens to their bodies, what happens in this life, they have hope. It's really easy to go down a rabbit hole of depression. If if you're watching today's news, and you see everything that's going on, and you read and you watch all of the pundits talking politically and making their case against one person or another and all of this stuff, it is super easy to get discouraged dealing with the pandemic of the coronavirus, all of this stuff is maddening. 
I've seen so many cases of people who are like what I'm just calling the coronavirus depression. There are people who are discouraged and depressed. And if we keep our eyes on these afflictions and the things that we're going through, it leads nowhere good. And so Paul tells us to look up that our hope is bound up in knowing that God loves us that God has chosen us, he's elected us, he's placed us in this time setting, that you and I live in history when this coronavirus is going out, when all of this stuff is happening, that we, for the majority of us who are in the United States living during these times, none of this caught God by surprise. God is still in control. Regardless of what happens, if you keep your eyes on him, there's hope and joy and rest knowing that he is sovereign, he is in control. Next week, we're going to look at the change in our lives and the change in their lives and to see how the gospel manifested itself in their lives. But until then, I pray that you would keep your eyes on Christ. If you don't know him as your savior, believe in him. Trust that he died for you so that you might have life. And when you do that, the Spirit comes upon you. You may or may not, like most, like you probably don't even notice that it happens. It takes time to then see how your life begins to be transformed and how you see things differently. But press on, knowing that He loves you, knowing that He's called you to this place in history. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand these great truths that Jesus loves us. Simple for a child, profound if you really think about it, that the creator of the universe loves us, that we can call him Father, that we can call you Father. And Father, we do ask that you would help us to understand your great love Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this idea of election and that you're sovereign and that you have placed us in this time and place. Father, we look to you for hope and peace and endurance. Lord, many of us are scared and worried about the future and just the uncertainty. And so, Lord, we cast that at your feet and we, Lord, we just ask that you would lead us through this time. We pray that for those of us who are in isolation and staying away for safety, that you would um, help them to feel connected and, and uh, just to find the emotional support that they uh, can get through the body. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. We ask that you would appear uh, more and more real to us day by day. Uh, we look forward to the coming week and when we will see each other again. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I wish you all a wonderful week. God bless you all. Goodbye.